محمد وآل محمد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad And the purified members of his household and project Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh So welcome to this fifth lesson in the series on general prophethood uh, as we mentioned in the last lesson uh, this series of 10 lessons is actually split up into smaller series related to specific topics pertaining to general prophethood so the topic that we started in the last lesson had to do with Asma or infallibility and we said that it's going to be stretching over three lessons so we covered the first lesson and we're going to do a very quick recap of the main points and then we'll continue where we left off inshallah so this is the second lesson and the third one again like we saw with the first topic the third lesson is going to be more about possible questions and objections related to everything we're covering in the last lesson and in this lesson um, so this lesson is continuing with more formal arguments for the infallibility of the prophets. And we'll make this distinction based on what we presented in the last time. We said the author is concentrating more on the infallibility of revelation itself, as opposed to the infallibility of the prophets, right? So we said while both are under the general heading of infallibility of prophethood, the first lesson had more to do with this chain of transmission. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the angels, and the reception of the uh, revelation itself. In this lesson, we're going to start talking about the, the infallibility of the prophets themselves. And inshallah, next lesson, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into possible objections, especially when people have been exposed to some of the literature, some of the scriptures that may give an indication that uh, this is contradictory to uh, the infallibility of prophets. Of course, this is a very big topic, and we're only going to be skimming the surface, but inshallah, it's going to give us some keys to deal with the topic in general. And this is maybe one of the other topics that we can keep in mind for later uh, as just mini-series related to specific topics of more interest that we can, we can uh, expose in, in, detail and, uh, in more detail, basically. So the outline of this lesson, following a quick introduction of the lesson. So we said the last lesson that we had, and we'll do a very quick recap, but the last lesson, the ending of it was a transition into this lesson. So the introduction of this lesson takes where we left off. So it continues with that transition. And then the lesson builds based on that, based on everything we would have said, by presenting first the rational proofs. And of course, there's more than what we're gonna see today. But the two big rational proofs that the author is going to be presenting for the infallibility of the prophets. And then he's going to follow that up with scriptural proofs or scriptural evidence, uh, arguments from scripture. And we're going to see that the author concentrates more on the Holy Quran than the narrations. Okay, and then the end of the lesson, and I think I mentioned that in the last, uh, last time we met, uh, I think it's a very interesting rich fascinating topic that he put under this heading of the secret of infallibility so in reality what he's trying to do is to go to the source of infallibility the source of asma 
why is it that these people are behaving in this way that we call Mahsul? Where, where does it stem from? What is the source of this Azmar? What's its true nature? So he's going to be presenting one theory and building all around that theory. Because there are a couple of other big theories there too, we're going to complement what he says with those two other big theories. And there are others, but I think with this we would have covered the, all the classic arguments and this topic about general prophethood, inshallah, from the angle of infallibility. So for the introduction, so very quickly as a reminder, until now what we said in this series is we've established with rational proofs that for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to create with a purpose, He needs to provide whatever human beings need for their guidance in order for them to reach the end for which they were created, the purpose for which they were created. And that is going back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, going towards Him through voluntary actions. For that, they need knowledge, that our knowledge is incomplete, it requires something more safe, more secure, more guaranteed, and we gave the conditions for that, and we said that is only under this general heading of revelation. It has to be with a divine intervention. The source has to be divine. So once we establish the necessity of revelation, or the necessity of prophethood, then we started looking into this chain, this revelation coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the way to human beings. When we looked at it, we said for the same reasons that the revelation is necessary, for those same reasons, and we're not going to repeat them now, for those same reasons that revelation needs to be safeguarded, we have to be sure that we can rely on it as though it is authentic, it has not been tampered with, it has not been distorted, that it is reaching us as it has left Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, that was what we've established until now. So those two big principles for general prophethood. So based on what we said, we not only established that the revelation has to, the content of the revelation has to be safeguarded, but the chain of transmission which is made up of angels and prophets. So we've already discussed the angels, we said that they have to be these trustworthy messengers of the message, and we explained the, the arguments for that. And we started talking about the prophets. So today we're going to continue about the prophets specifically. A couple of points that were mentioned towards the end of the lesson last time. There were three points, so I want to concentrate maybe on, on one of them a little bit more. Had to do with the definition of infallibility. What do we mean when we say infallibility? So we said it's not enough just to say someone has not sinned. We can imagine many scenarios where someone has not committed a sin, but they would still not fall under this type of infallibility that we need in, in the theological discussions we're having. Someone, for instance, may have been born and unfortunately, subhanAllah, they die very quickly after they're born. So they die in a very young age. That person has not had time to even perform a sin. So they have left this world without any sins. Does that fall under infallibility? So in practice, this person is infallible in the sense that they have not committed a sin, but that's not the infallibility we're talking about. In other conditions and other circumstances, we talked about the possibility of someone not being able to, not having the tools to perform a sin. 
okay? And we mentioned one example when we said someone came to, to the marja saying, you know, I want to repent for it. I want to stop playing this musical instrument. And when he was pushed, it seemed that it's not that the person is really repenting, it's that he no longer had the ability to play that instrument. Okay, there's a difference between not being able to and being able but not choosing to. So what we're talking about when we say infallibility, we're talking about a character, a trait in your character, in your being, that gives you the discipline to choose not to sin when you can sin. And when you will really want to put it to the test under very difficult circumstances. This is when you put it to the test and you see, is the person going to maintain that infallibility or not? And inshallah today we're going to mention a couple of examples in the cases of prophets and uh, peace upon them all, or sometimes in the imams, we're not going to be talking about that yet. It will come later where we see the difficulties in which they were put to put them to the test, to the full test. There's always a test and this is where the infallibility really shows through. And then this is going to open the door and inshallah we're going to talk about that directly in the next lesson, which is where is the merit of these people if we're saying that they have a divine grace, that they have this trait that comes to them from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being infallible. So what is their merit? How can we say that they have any real value or merit or esteem? And the key is going to be, well, do they have the choice to sin and to do good and they're choosing the good or not? That's going to be the key. And we're going to come back to that inshallah. But we're going to give the hints to the answer in today's lesson a little bit later. Okay, so towards the end of the lesson, the author also, last lesson, the author also told us that if we look at the entire religion of Islam, all the schools of thought, all the scholars, we see that there is disagreement about the scope of infallibility. So we have people going from one extreme to the other. We have Al-Hashawiyyah or Al-Hashawiyyah who are a group of people that appeared at a certain period in time. They were closely related to Al-Hanabila, but they were not Hanabila. Uh, and they were called Al-Hashawiyya because they would basically fill the books with fabrications and mix them up with the authentic narrations of the Holy Prophet. And they would resort to the Hadith to justify anything, when a lot of it is fabrications. So they were referred to as Al-Hashawiyya. Those were on one extreme. And there may be people today who lean towards that. And that extreme is basically what we refer to as infallibility doesn't even exist. The angels, the prophets, messengers, everybody sins. They sin before the revelation, after the revelation, in young age. Uh, sinning may happen at any time, even voluntarily. Okay, so that's one extreme. And of course, we reject that. At the other extreme of that, there is the Shia. Al-Imamiyyah who follow the Imams of Ahlul Bayt and we believe based on the teachings of our Imams that the Prophets and the Imams are infallible. So in what sense? So we gave different criteria, different categories of distinction for that scope. We said for instance there are groups who say infallibility only happens according to them once the Prophets reach a certain age. We don't believe that. We think it's for life. We said there are groups who believe that infallibility only begins after revelation. We don't believe that. We believe that it begins with the birth and it remains in place. We said that some groups believe that revelation, that infallibility only applies within revelation. So not the rest of the day-to-day -day lives, the personal lives and affairs of those prophets. And of course we believe that no, it extends to the rest of the dimensions of their lives. 
Here the author also adds a little point. So while he says that the consensus of the Shia is that there is no prophet who will ever undertake voluntary steps to commit a sin, there is disagreement between the Shia, between the school of thought, about the details that do not have anything to do with the revelation itself. So we have had scholars who say, for instance, it is possible for prophets to forget. So today there may be scholars, for instance, who say there is a group of people who meet the Holy Prophet or who meet a prophet at a certain time. And then months later, that prophet may forget the name of one of the people that he met. This has nothing to do with the revelation. No one should be using that against a prophet in the sense that it puts in jeopardy the mission of the prophet. So no one is going to come back and say, therefore the entire mission is cancelled or nullified. <coughs> okay? That said, what we're going to see today, so here when he adds that, he says, if we go to the narrations, if we look at the entire corpus of Shi'i narrations that we have, we do find some contradictions. We have some narrations that seem to indicate that that is the case. For these minor details in their personal affairs, there might be these mistakes, this forgetfulness, these kinds of things may happen. We have that in some narrations. And because this is not the place to dig into them, because this is what we would need to do, we, have, we would have to go through them and see do we accept or reject those narrations and based on what criteria. He says this is not the topic that we're going to cover here. But he puts it to rest simply by saying, if we look at all of this, our conclusion is for this detail, for this, these minor affairs and the personal lives of the prophets, if someone believes or doesn't believe in it, it's not going to be an essential or necessary condition in our faith. And we've talked about this when we started part one. I don't know if you guys remember or not. We said that there are spheres. We create spheres of inclusion and exclusion in our faith where we say here are the conditions. If you meet those conditions, you're included in this sphere of faith. So you are a muahid, for instance, or not. You are a Muslim, or not. You are a Shi'i, or not, right? And you go more and more restrictive by adding more and more conditions. <coughs> so when a scholar says in the fiqhi sense, or in the, so in, in, from a legal perspective, or from a theological perspective, when they say this is not a condition, when this is not an essential criteria of faith, what they're saying is if someone does not believe in this item, in this article of faith, it does not automatically put them outside our sphere of faith. Okay? So here he's saying if someone does not believe, this is his opinion, other, other scholars may disagree with this. If someone does not believe that the prophets are infallible, in all of the aspects of their lives, revelation and personal affairs, major and minor, this does not necessarily exclude them from the Shia faith. You can't say this person is not Shi'i because they do not believe in the infallibility of prophets in this minor detail. This is his opinion, this is his verdict at the end. Now I will add that this is not the verdict of every scholar. We have different opinions on this. And the second point I will add is, and this is something to keep in mind for us beyond this lesson. When we find that a, a, a scholar gives this type of verdict, when he says this is not an essential factor or article of faith, does not necessarily mean that this is what they believe. So I'm not saying that this author 
is saying that he does not believe in the full continuum of infallibility of the prophets. He may believe that prophets are infallible in minor details of personal lives as well as everything else. But he's saying if someone does not in this detail, I do not exclude them from the faith. This is two different things. So one of them is more of a legal verdict that he's saying this is where the sphere of our faith, of our madhab are drawn. And the other one is what I believe. And here are my conclusions and my arguments. And what we're going to see in the lesson, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it after I'm mentioning the point here, especially if you go back to the book and you read it, what the kind of infallibility that he's establishing in this and that we're going to establish absolutely covers the entire spectrum. Okay, so what we're going to establish is a full spectrum. Here we're only adding this detail, which is if someone does not believe that infallibility extends to the personal affairs that have nothing to do with the aspects of revelation and the mission of a prophet, this does not exclude them from our madhab, from our faith. Okay, that's the point. So as we said, if, and the author says this, there's a lot of narrations related to infallibility or non-infallibility of the prophets in different spheres. And of course, we add to that, there are many verses of the Holy Quran. The problem with the Holy Quran is that it's always open to interpretation. And what happened is, if we go to the other schools of thought, they also relied on the Holy Quran. And they also relied on their narrations. So what we believe happened is, because they did not go to the source, they did not ask Ahl al-Bayt about the true meaning of these verses. And inshallah, we're going to talk more in detail about those specifically in the next lesson. That's what the lesson is about. So here he mentions very quickly in passing, the reason why the Shia have a consensus and believe in this type of infallibility that we do not find in the other schools of thought is because they follow the Imams. It's because they follow the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt who have taught their Shia that this is the infallibility the, the rank or level or degree of infallibility that we find in the prophets as well as in the imams and perhaps to even higher degree okay so that's one and as we said for the holy quran what what we'll see he mentions very quickly he says so inshallah i kept this for the next lesson although it's only mentioned here he says uh for example for what he says is uh so if the Shia have believed in this type of infallibility, it's by following their Imams. For instance, the very famous uh, dialogues or discussions or polemics that Imam Rabba had in the presence of Al-Ma'mun. And he just stops there without mentioning the sources or referencing that. So inshallah we'll make time in the next lecture to at least read, if not the entire, there's two famous ahadith that we find in Kitab al-Ihtijaj and Ayyun Akhbar al-Rada, we'll mention them quickly, we'll read them, to see at least the gist of what the Imam is saying. When the Imam is being questioned by al-Ma'mun or al-Juhm, he's being men, uh, questioned about the infallibility of one prophet after another, basically by going back to specific verses of the Holy Quran, and how Imam Rada answers one after the other to show did Adam alayhi salam really sin or not? Did Yunus alayhi salam really sin? Did Dawood alayhi salam really sin? Did Yusuf alayhi salam? Okay, and so we'll go into those specifics in the next uh, lesson, inshallah. So as we said for this lesson, what's coming, so here the author introduces, this is the end of the introduction, the author says, so from this point on, we're now going to introduce two rational arguments for the infallibility of the prophets. 
and three scriptural arguments for the infallibility of the prophets. So scriptural coming from the scriptures. And don't forget everything we've said until now about how we have not really established that the Holy Quran is a reliable, autonomous, separate source of knowledge yet that will come. So yet we have to park this dimension of the discourse for now. But for someone who actually believes in the Holy Quran, then this is what we're gonna we're gonna see three different arguments that can be used from the Quran, and there, is, there are dozens of them. Okay, so let's start with the rational proofs. We mentioned this a little bit very in passing quickly in the last uh, lesson. Based on the Holy Quran, we see that the mission of the prophets has been presented as falling in two big areas. One of them has to do with teaching. So in the lesson, it's not presented this way, but to make the connection with what we said before. One of them has to do with teaching, so more theoretical. And the other one has to do with purification, or more practical. So on one dimension, they are sent to guide people in theory. And on the other side, they are sent to guide people spiritually and practically. So, if we go back to the main argument that we presented, we said that the purpose of revelation is for human beings to be guided. For me to be guided, I have to have access to a reliable, trustworthy source of information. So any act from this person who is supposed to be the personification of that message who is supposed to be the messenger coming up, coming to me with that message, coming to me with that communication. Any act from them that makes me doubt the validity of that message cannot be accepted. And it was mentioned in passing very quickly. It was based on an intervention last week. But this is exactly the argument, and it's very commonsensical. So the first argument to show the infallibility to prove, to argue for the infallibility of the prophets is that if they were not infallible, to use a negative version, if they are not infallible, then it defies the purpose of sending prophets at all. If the prophets are going, so if we take examples, if the prophet is going to forget and people realize that he forgot, then they're going to say, well, how am I supposed to rely on the rest of the message that you're giving me because you may also be forgetting some portions. If he makes mistakes, then how am I supposed to rely on the rest of the message and be sure that you have not made mistakes in the rest of the message? So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows those kinds of mistakes, those kinds of uh, matters to happen, let's say forgetfulness for instance, and these are only the simpler versions of what would defy or contradict infallibility. What if those prophets are telling people, this is how you're supposed to conduct yourself. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala expects of you legally. This is what's binding, and yet they intentionally sin. This is the real argument. So if you are the person who's supposed to be carrying this message and you sin, that's it, it invalidates the whole message. Especially because the message has a spiritual dimension. Okay, so in philosophy, they'll tell you, don't attack the person, always look at the content. The content may be good, but in the case of 
revolutionary spiritual messages where you're asking, expecting human beings to sacrifice so much and to shift their thinking and their worldview to let basically everything go and to follow them. I need someone who's worthy of being followed. I cannot have anything that puts that message in doubt. So anything that makes me doubt that message has to be rejected. Otherwise, it defies the divine wisdom, the divine purpose of sending prophets and revelation in the first place. Okay? So that's the first. So one way to present this argument is to say, based on hypocrisy. So the argument from hypocrisy is basically saying, well, if you're saying don't do it, but you're doing it, you're being a hypocrite, I can't follow you. And therefore, it invalidates your entire message. Okay? So that's one way to put it. The other one is unreliability. I cannot really trust that what you're telling me about the message is true. If you lied here, you may lie everywhere. If you sinned here, you may sin everywhere. You may do it for personal reasons. You may have forgotten. You may have been mistaken. And so on and so forth. So that's the first message. That's the first argument. So rational argument to prove the, to argue for the infallibility of the prophets. And this is more at the level of theory. So this is for me to be able to rely on the message at a theoretical the other dimension, which is the practical or the spiritual. These prophets, these messengers, the other part of their mission, the other part of the reason why they were sent is this purification. How are you supposed to purify me if you are not in complete control of your faculties, of yourself? If you have not reached a higher level of purity, spiritual purity, spiritual rank than I have, how can I rely on you? If I can pinpoint gaps in your character, how can I follow you? And this is supposed to be at the level of humanity. So this becomes even worse when we take into consideration that there will be human beings who will have, without the prophethood, without the benefit of this external intervention, divine intervention, they will be of exceptional moral character. There will be human beings who have a very noble character, people who have amazing discipline, people who are always leaning towards spiritual purification. How are those people supposed to follow someone who is of a lesser rank than they are? So this is more of a, at a practical level in order for the prophets, in order for the messengers to fully perform their duties, they also need to lead by example without any words. Okay, and we're going to see a couple examples of that to make that point a little bit more clear. So, yeah. Uh, the more you explain this, the more the shayyah sounds very altruistic and very idealistic. And it seems like the less something is idealistic or altruistic, it's actually the exact opposite happens. It finds more followers. Well, so it becomes. How would you answer that? Yeah, it, it, like it could become the more paradoxical. Is flawed, it seems like, yeah. It could become paradoxical. So there are people who are looking to follow the va the, the, the ideal, mm -hmm. the value at its highest level of purity. So this is very attractive for human beings. And there are people who are going to find fault with this and say this is not practical. Mm -hmm. This is not something that we can actually apply. And this is a, a point where we, we touched on 
uh, and it was a lengthy question where we answered it in a few minutes, I think two or three lectures ago, uh, lessons ago. Uh, and the idea was basically, how are we supposed to, and inshallah we're gonna come back to that again. How are we supposed to follow role models who are at this high level of infallibility if we know that we will never be able to attain that? And so we gave an answer from multiple perspectives. And I think one way to put it is exactly like you're saying. It could be used as an argument against. And another way to put it is it's actually a blessing for humanity. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have sent us role models at this level of perfection. Because if it was lacking, it would create other problems. So the problem we have is an easy one. It's just, it's such a high level of perfection that it may look like it's an, too idealistic for us to be able to emulate. Really, that's what it comes down to, right? And the reality is that it's not. And inshallah, we're gonna talk about that in this lesson. Towards the end, we're, we're gonna talk about the nature of infallibility. What it gives us and I hope that this is gonna become clear. What it gives us is that we can aspire to an infinity of ranks of perfection, which is not the same as saying it gives us an ideal that is unattainable. It is attainable. But we have to understand that what's being presented to us is an infinity of ranks. We may aspire to the lower ranks and we may aspire to the higher ranks. And inshallah, it'll become clear with what we're going to present, the three theories of the source of infallibility. And then you can tell me if, if it helps to answer that question. Did you understand my question? Like my question was, why is the less idealistic movements more popular? I think there's historical reasons, not okay, so only rational that. ones. Okay. I think otherwise, if people really understand, I'll give you an example in the Muslim world, although there is, you know, if you, if you go into the theology, the details of theology, and I mean, what's the percentage of people who are gonna do some scholarship about theology? If you talk to the commoners who have not studied theology, and you talk to them about, let's say, their love and their attachment to the Holy Prophet and the Muslim world in general, they, they, they are ready to, to to melt in the in this entity, which is the Holy Prophet, because of the perfection that they think he represents. So human beings in general are always going to be attracted to the idea. I think it's when you go into the details and you show the inconsistency, it doesn't sit well, but then you have an ideological stance. Okay, so inshallah we, we can add more to that. Um, the last point here is, and the author makes it, and we've already mentioned it, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but the author also adds to this, especially this, the second part of the argument is, of course, the importance of action versus words. It's one thing for me to try to guide you with my words and my teachings, my theories. It's another when you see my conduct and you see how do I actually carry myself. So the, the prophets can come to the people with all the teachings, the theoretical teachings in the world. What's really going to matter and be more influential and more impactful on people is not those teachings. It's the conduct. It's the day-to-day -day and how they interact with people. How do I interact with my friend and with my family and with my enemy and the stranger and, and the environment and people of the past and people of the future? This is where I see the real value and the real character, the real traits of that person. 
And this has a lot more of an impact, and we've talked about this, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But this goes with the second point, which is, it's one thing to talk about their guidance in theory, in theory with their theoretical teachings, with verses of the Holy Quran and with revelations. and It's another to talk about how they actually conducted themselves and people witnessing them in their day-to-day -day lives and being influenced by that. And our belief is the Holy Prophet's success, the secret of his success, the incredible, the exceptional speed at which he was able to convert people or to have people enter into Islam is, is here. It's his conduct. Of course, he was presenting them with an incredible theoretical system that did not exist before. Of course, that comes there. But if you take into consideration the reality of that society, their beliefs, and the difficulty with which you can get through with the theoretical system, you see that what's getting through to people is his conduct, it's his humanity, it's his character. It's not the theoretical teachings, those become secondary. And here I think it's just a, a remark in passing, because it has to do with this second point if someone wants to extend this notion of the purity or the spiritual rank of the leader or the guide, then we can extend that to our lives too. And in fact, our religion encourages us to do that. And we have many, many narrations and many, many verses of the Holy Quran that we can use for this. For instance, we have in, in some of the verses of the Quran, let the human being look or contemplate his food. When the Imam was asked about this verse, he said, the Quran is not talking about the food we eat. The Quran is talking about knowledge. Let the human being look at the knowledge. From where do they get it? From whom do you get it? And we have other narrations that tell us when you listen to someone, when you listen to a speaker, you're worshiping them. So if they are, what they're saying is divine or godly, then you're worshiping God. And if what they're saying is evil, then you're worshiping evil. Okay, what does this tell us? This is not in full contradiction with, we have other verses, other narrations for instance, and there's a lot of insistence on that in our religion. Knowledge is of such high importance that we are told, go acquire it from wherever you need to. Go learn it even if it's from the enemies. Go learn it even if it's under torture and difficult circumstances. So do we put that aside and say, well, if the person teaching us may not be of the highest moral character, then we can't learn. No. So our religion is telling us, go learn from wherever you can. But if you have the choice, this is a factor. When you listen to someone, especially if they're teaching, they're in a leadership position, they're talking and you're listening, whether you like it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, you're getting influenced. So what are you allowing yourself to be influenced by? Is the influence that's coming to you, is it based on someone who has a moral character and a spiritual character of a higher rank? They're pure? Because all of that is going to come through. So this is going to apply, of course it applies in religion. Of course, this should go without saying. If I want to learn religious matters, it's not just a matter of accumulating pieces of information one on top of the other. Okay, that's one thing. Of course, that's important. But if I have the choice between that and going towards someone who can also add the spiritual, the 
ethical, moral perspective, and there's piety and there's purity, and something it's very difficult for us to judge people that way, but it's what you're getting from them. If there is that, then of course this takes precedence over just an empty accumulation of data and information. That's important, but that's not the point. The point is spiritual purification. And then we can extend that to beyond religion too. If I have to go learn math or history or physics, well, you know, it's we're not the unfortunate maybe position of not having enough qualified, competent people. The aspiration is that we do have them. But if we don't have them, then our job is to create them so that we have people who also have this moral character and this purity and purification of the soul that goes along with teaching physics and math so that what the entire influence we're getting or that our children is, are getting is based on this spiritual basis. Anyways, this is a, a, a point in passing. So if we go back to this second part of the rational proof when we said it's the spiritual guidance, the practical aspect, not the theoretical. theoretical. So here are two quick arguments, proofs from scriptures. The first one comes from Imam Ali alayhi salam from Nahj al-Balagha and the third part of Nahj al-Balagha we have the short sayings of Imam Ali alayhi salam. This is one of his short sayings. So the Imam says, whoever places himself as a leader for the people. So the Imam here is being general. He's not even talking about prophets. So we have to extend that and uh, basically readjust this for the level of someone like a prophet or a messenger. Whoever places himself as a leader for the people must start by educating his own self before educating others. That's one part, that's one principle. Two, and let their training be by his conduct before training by his tongue. So if I wanna train people, if I wanna educate and instruct people, my main instruction, my main means, my main way of teaching people should be through my conduct not through my words, not through my mouth. Two, second principle, third principle. And the one who teaches and instructs himself is more deserving of honorable esteem than he who teaches and instructs others. It's a lot more difficult to apply your knowledge to yourself than it is to simply put it on someone else and expect them to, to, to rise to whatever teachings you're giving them. So the Imam is saying, if you find someone who has taught himself and trained himself and disciplined himself, that's about is of much higher esteem. Ahakku ijlal, and the Imam says in Arabic, that person is more worthy, more deserving of your respect and your esteem than someone who's simply teaching others. Teaching others is the easy way. Okay, so this is all in connection to what we're saying, which is teaching by practice, the spiritual guidance criteria or argument. And the, the very famous narrations from the Holy Prophet, there's a few of them, they come in different uh, versions. One of them is the very famous, Indeed I have been sent in order to perfect the best of manners. Utammim is to perfect, is to complete or perfect. So they are already the best of manners and I have been sent to perfect them. So the Holy Prophet is basically summarizing his entire mission as being that. And there's another version of this narration very close to it. He says, I have been sent with. Okay, so either or we can see the importance of this, the spiritual guidance based on the conduct. Okay, it's practical, it's not a theory part. 
Okay, so this was the rational proofs. These were the rational arguments for the infallibility of the prophets. Now let's turn to scriptural. First note is, although the author says Dalil Naqli, so scriptural or narrational proofs, in fact, he limits himself to the Holy Quran. He doesn't go into the narrations, so we were not gonna mention any narrations either. Okay, and secondly, he limits himself to three, so we're gonna limit ourselves to the three that he mentions. There's others, but those three are very good. If one understands them fully, these are very good arguments from the scriptures that allow us to establish the infallibility of the prophets. Proof number one. Proof number one comes to us from a term used in the Quran that is not very easy to translate fully in English, which is the term mukhlas, which is different from mukhlis. Okay, I'm not going to get into the Arabic. Uh, reason or the Arabic explanation, grammatical explanation, one is ism fa'il, one of them is the subject. Mukhlis is the subject. I'm the one performing the, the action of the verb. Mukhlis is someone who is seeking to or making themselves sincere and pure because ikhlas has sincerity and purity. Okay? So someone who makes themselves sincere and pure, they are mukhlis. They're sincere and pure, or they may they have made, and I'm intentionally adding the, the, the subject, the pronoun, they are making themselves sincere and pure. That's mukhlis. This doesn't help us for infallibility. But we also have in the Holy Quran mukhlas. And this comes again and again in the Quran in different places. Mukhlas is someone, it's passive, it's in a passive form. It's someone who has been made. From the outside, they have been made sincere and pure. Uh, this is different. There's a guarantee from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Holy Quran that those people can be referred to as mukhlas, people who have been made. So obviously the implied here is they have been made by God. They have been made by God to be sincere and pure. And of course, this is a much higher rank and it doesn't come out of the blue. It doesn't come and we can get to that in the objections in the next week. Why is it that those people get this divine grace or this additional rank? So of course they are mukhlis. They are way past mukhlis. They have done all the ikhlas that they can on their own. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has added this stamp of approval from himself by telling everybody else, those people I am guaranteeing their sincerity and purity, I have made them so. Okay, so this, these are two completely different ranks. So we start with a, with a, the principle, the verse that brings it all together. We understand the main teaching through this verse. And the verse is fascinating. So this is the story of Iblis, the story of Satan. Towards the end of the story, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked him and the rest of the angels to bow down to Adam alayhi salam, and he refuses, and then there's an exchange, and then he swears that he is going to deceive all human beings, because it's as a result of not bowing down to them that he has been kicked out of the divine mercy. So he swears, and the verse in Surah Sa'd says, and I swear and see the, the terminology that he uses. This is why our scholars always say, see the, the level of knowledge that Satan has. See how when he swears, when he wants to show that he's speaking with emphasis, how he chooses his words. He, he swears by the might of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
I swear by your might that I'm going to deceive every last one of them. And then he adds, except those who have been made sincere and pure. Why? Is it because he's nice? Is it because he wants to limit the damage that he can do? Is it because he doesn't have the energy? Because he knows that this is where his ability stops. He has no power over those people. While he can deceive everybody else, those people are outside of his area of work, his area of power. So he doesn't even waste time on them. And that's why the verse says, I, I will surely tempt or deceive or dupe or beguile every one of them to evil, except your servants among them who have been made sincere and purified. Okay, mukhlasin. Illa ibadaka minhumul mukhlasin. Okay, that's one. So this gives us the general heading. However, this verse does not specifically say, and the prophets have been given infallibility. What it does give us is that there are servants, there are creatures from among, from among the people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen and whom the devil himself says, I cannot deceive, I cannot do, I cannot seduce, I cannot tempt. So for sure, within that group, we are going to find the prophets. And they, it may extend to others, we don't know. It may be a lot more general than that. But what we are sure is that there is a group in them that the devil is not able to influence. And that group is those that we refer to as the prophets. And then we have specific examples. So we took the, that was the general principle. So if we go throughout the Qur'an, we see this term, very specific term in the Qur'an, al-mukhlas, mukhlasin, comes here and there. And we see used in very specific instances in the Qur'an. Especially instances where there may be doubt about the very infallibility of the prophets, then the Qur'an comes and adds that word to link you back to this verse which says, don't you go thinking that the devil had a way to reach this person. If this is what you thought is the interpretation of the verse, then you're, you need to go and get clarification on its meaning. Because this is not what it's hap what's happening. So for instance, we have uh, in Surah Sa'd again, and remember our servants, Ibrahim, Ishaq, and Ya'qub, of strength and insight. Indeed, we purified them with an exclusive purity. What's that? This selective or selective purity that we gave them? The remembrance of the abode. The remembrance that there's an afterlife. There's a, there's a, a hereafter. This is an additional purity that we chose them with, that we gave them. This explains their infallibility, and we're going to get back to it. If you're in a situation where the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Holy Quran says that you're one of those people who is in constant remembrance of the afterlife, then you're infallible. If you know what's awaiting you, you're never in a moment of distraction, of forgetfulness of this, then you're infallible. Another verse, and remember in the book Musa, indeed he had been made sincere and pure and was a messenger prophet. Messenger prophet. So we have the two ranks, and none of these lessons are going to get into the 
the difference between a messenger and a prophet. There's a lot of narrations about this. And then we have um, in Surah Yusuf السلام, the famous story between Zulaikha and Yusuf السلام, she certainly made for him. So she came forward, she made for him, Hammat Bih, and inshallah we're going to talk about that more in the next lesson. And he would have made for her had he not beheld the proof of his Lord. Okay, and inshallah when we're going to get into the details and how our Imams explain to us the, the interpretation of this verse, it's not what we think is happening here. Okay, we're going to get into that inshallah next time. So it was that we might turn away from him, from Yusuf السلام, we might turn, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we might turn away from him, evil and indecency. Why? He was indeed one of our servants, made sincere and pure. So if you're about to interpret this verse as, he may have been tempted, but then he didn't, then you missed the point. If he was tempted, it means there was a, an evil implication here, an evil influence, an evil desire, and then he had the discipline not to go there. No, no, he did not even go there. Okay, because he's mukhlas. He's not mukhlas. He's not someone who is fighting the urges and he may win and he may lose. He's out of a higher rank. And we're going to explain again when we're going to talk about the secret of infallibility, what do we mean by that higher rank in a moment. Okay? So we're not saying that he's incapable of. He is capable. But he chooses not to, and we're going to see why. <coughs> okay, so the first group of verses of the Quran had to do with this notion of ikhlas under the term mukhlas. Second group of verses, and only one is mentioned in the, in the lesson, but we can add more. The second group of verses has to do with the absolute unconditional obedience that human beings are supposed to have towards prophets. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he tells us to obey someone, he always adds conditions. And in our religion we always have conditions. For me to follow a scholar, there are conditions that have to be put in place. And if that scholar suddenly no longer meets one of those conditions, I no longer follow them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, obey your parents in the Quran respect them and obey them. But then it says, but if they ask you to ascribe partners to Allah, do not obey them. The Quran adds conditions. Okay. The Quran always adds, it doesn't give this absolute authority to anyone over anyone. So when it does, then we have to be careful. How come this person just got an absolute authority? It means Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is considering them as a full representative of Himself. Therefore, they're guaranteed. I don't need to put any conditions. If you're following them, <coughs> whoever obeys the Holy Prophet, they have obeyed Allah. End of story. We've established the infallibility of the Prophet. Or this verse of the Quran that says, we have never sent a messenger to any people, but to be obeyed by Allah's permission. We have never sent a prophet except so that everyone obeys them. This is an absolute obedience. There are no conditions. 
if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you obey that person without any conditions, it means they're infallible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving me a guarantee that I can rely this person blindly. Okay, so this is a second group of verses in the Quran that can be used. This is a second scriptural argument for the infallibility of the prophets. The last one, the argument about or from injustice. So there's a whole theory in the Holy Quran about justice and injustice and what it means. In our terminology, usually when we say injustice, we're usually referring to someone transgressing on the right of someone else. But in the terminology of the Holy Quran, this is not how injustice is used. Injustice is first used for someone who transgresses the rights of Allah and commits an injustice towards themselves. That's why the Quran says, whoever trespasses the boundaries of Allah, they have committed an injustice against themselves. Okay? So this comes back again and again, this theory of injustice. So that's a premise that's not mentioned in the book. So we have to keep it in mind. If we understand how injustice is used in the Quran, it's vulm is basically any sin. Any movement that goes against what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established in terms of a system. Now we go to the story of Ibrahim in Surah Al-Baqarah. There is this whole back and forth between Ibrahim alayhi salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his story is scattered throughout the Quran. At this point, Ibrahim alayhi salam has been put through numerous tests. And in our narrations, they explain to us that at, by this time, he had reached the status of prophethood. And then he reached the status of being a messenger, which is of a higher level. And now he has just been made an imam because he passed the last of the highest tests that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made him go through. The Quran refers to them as words. Okay? Ibrahim is being tested with words. Some, the majority, the majority of opinion is when he was asked to put his son and as though he was going to kill him. This is the, that was the, the end, the, the final of the, the tribulations or the test that he had to go through. Others say it's other ones. In any case, here he is towards the end of his life. And Ibrahim alayhi salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and when his Lord, the Lord of Ibrahim, tested Ibrahim with certain words, and he fulfilled them perfectly, فَأَتَمَّهُنْ He didn't only fulfill them, he fulfilled them to completion, to perfection, فَأَتَمَّهُنْ This is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He said, I am making you the imam over people. إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا I am now going to make you an imam over all people. This is the etiquette of prophethood. He wants to ask, but he doesn't ask. He wants to request something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but he doesn't directly. So he makes it as though it's an innocent question. What about my progeny? And this is something that comes back in again and again in the Holy Quran for Ibrahim He's always asking about his progeny. He's not asking about his direct son or his direct sons. He's asking about his progeny to Yom Al-Qiyamah, as we have in certain verses. So he says, you have made me an Imam, what about my progeny? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not answer directly. He doesn't say yes, no, some of them, he doesn't say any of that. He gives a general principle. He says, لا ينال أحد My covenant cannot be reached by those who commit injustice. 
Okay, so now imamah has been used by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a covenant. And this covenant cannot be given except to someone who has never committed an injustice. And if we understand how the Holy Quran uses injustice, which is committing any sin, then this criteria, this condition to apply to anyone to become an Imam at this level, and we have it in the Holy Quran where the Quran refers to some of these prophets and some of these messengers as Imams. Now we have the condition. So it's a very high level of infallibility. Okay, so these are three different categories of verses, and there are many others that can be used scripturally to establish evidence to argue for the infallibility of prophets. Now we reach the last part of the lesson, which is what the author has referred to as the secret of infallibility. And he's here we said, basically this is trying to understand the nature of infallibility. Where does it come from? Where does it stem from? What is the source of this character trait that gives these people this kind of discipline and make makes these people make these choices so as we said the author here is going to present one theory and we're going to complement it with two others okay quickly but to give the full picture here the author splits and it's important to do this he takes this secret behind infallibility and splits it into two questions or two sub questions the first one has to do with revelation. So it's to close the loop on the discussion that we started in the last lesson about this chain of transmission. We want to close the loop, close the loop on it. And then the second question is, what about outside of that chain of transmission in the rest of their lives? Why is it that these people do not commit sins? What's preventing these people? What's the secret preventing these people from actually committing sins? So first, let's close the loop on the revelation. What did we say? We said there's a chain of transmission for that revelation to go from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reach human beings. So we've already established, and generally speaking, the infallibility of the angels and the infallibility of the prophets. Here, we want to push it a little bit further, especially for the prophets. Why is it that we can rely on this type of information, of content, coming to us from the prophets? Why don't we say maybe there's an involuntary or voluntary distortion? Is it possible for them to make a mistake, voluntary or not, whether there is an intermediary or not, regardless of whatever they're receiving? Is it possible for them to make a mistake in it and therefore not to transmit it as it is to the, to the people that they're communicating with? And the short answer is no, it's not possible. So why? And the reason is, it goes back to a lesson or maybe more than a lesson, we spent explaining the different types of knowledge. We said there's one knowledge that we called it acquired, usuli, theoretical. And we said there's another type of knowledge in presentia, right? In when you are in the presence 
of the thing itself. It's not a mental image of the known that you have. It's the known itself that is present to you. So it's an existential knowledge. Your knowledge that you exist or your knowledge of whatever you're feeling, you feel that you are aware. You taste something and you know what, that you're tasting it right now. This is an existential knowledge. Later, you may remember that knowledge. So you create a mental image of whatever you felt. That's a mental image. That's, a, that's not the knowledge itself because you're not living it. You're not existentially feeling that. These are two different types of knowledge. If my knowledge of something is a mental image of it, it's not the thing itself, it's different if I say, I understand in theory what heat is, completely different than putting my hand in the fire. Understand what a toothache is, and I have a toothache right now. These are two completely different types of knowledge. The dentist understands in theory that you currently have a toothache and they need to fix it. But they're not feeling the pain that you're feeling right now. You are feeling it. You have an existential knowledge of it. And no one can come and say, you're not feeling what you're feeling. You may misinterpret because of all sorts of reasons. You may feel hungry and you're not really hungry. You've taken a drug, you're under some sort of influence of something that makes you feel hungry. You're not really hungry, you're feeling something else. There may be a distortion there, but what you're feeling, you're feeling. Now you may mistakenly call it hunger. That's different, okay? So this distinction that we made in part one, we spent an entire lecture or more on it, a few lectures on it. We're gonna go back to it here. So the author doesn't really spend a lot of time on it. All he says is, keeping in mind, and the Holy Quran refers to this again and again, keeping in mind that the type of knowledge that the prophets have is existential knowledge, then there's no room for mistakes. This is not theoretical knowledge where it may be and it may not be. This is not a mental image. When, they, when the revelation comes to them, they live the revelation. The Holy Quran says, the Quran came, it uses Fu'ad for instance. It says your inner heart, or it says, when it was revealed in your heart, upon your heart, the Messenger Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends Jibra'il with the message, it comes on your heart, O Holy Prophet. Okay, so there is something that is being existentially felt that is completely different from saying it's a theoretical type of knowledge. It's not something you learn in a book where you may mistakenly uh, capture, uh, acquire that knowledge and you may not. Okay, so if there's more needed here, we can come back to it or I would strongly advise going back to the lessons about Ilm Fusuli and Fawuri in part one where we gave a lot of examples and spent an entire lecture on that. So if we keep that in mind, then we understand why the verses of the Qur'an, on one side they're saying there is no distortion, there is no lie, there is no uh, misconception or misperception about, about what was seen. And so the inner heart has not belied what it has seen. What it has seen is really the case as it is. There is no distortion. There is no lack or, or, or change or in, in the communication and the message that is, that is being received. Okay? So this is just to close the loop on this chain of transmission. 
the impossibility. Why do we say that it's impossible for a prophet? And this, of course, opens the door to, this is a kind of the philosophical argument against all these fabricated stories that we find in the books of history about what happened, let's say, to the Holy Prophet. There's a lot of these stories for other prophets, but in the case of our prophet, where we see that the beginning of the revelation, where the Holy Prophet is not sure what's, who's talking to him, what's being communicated to him, and then when he hears it, he goes into this weird crisis where he says, I wanted to throw myself off a cliff and commit suicide as I don't know what was going on to me. I was scared, I ran home, and I told Khadija, I don't know, I've gone crazy, I've gone mad, I wanna kill myself. And then she comforted him and she covered him and made him sit and calm down. And then she called her cousin or her uncle, Waraka bin Nawfal, who was a monk, a Christian monk, and who would have come and asked the Prophet. So he's not a Muslim. The Holy Prophet was just revealed to him by God. And yet he has no clue what's going on. And this Christian monk comes and tells him, what happened to you? Then he tells him, yeah, that's true. You are truly a messenger based on what you're saying. And by the way, Waraka bin Nafal never becomes Muslim. <coughs> he's telling him, yeah, God just revealed to you. He never, although there are some that say he died a good man and so on and so forth. Okay, so if you take a story like that, and our books of history, some of them are filled with these, it does not make any sense. If you understand the nature of revelation, that this is a knowledge in presence, you know who's talking to you. You know God is talking to you. You know where the message is coming from. You know what is being communicated to you. There's no question about that part. Now, there might be a question about what do I do with this? What am I? But even that can be another topic. That's completely different from saying the Holy Prophet had no clue who's talking to him had no clue what to do with this, has he gone mad or not? And of course they're gonna come back later and use this and say the Holy Prophet was an epileptic man who had seizures, who was kind of unstable mentally and psychologically, and that's why nothing that he says can be relied upon. Yeah, no, he's hallucinating, he's an unstable man. You know, of course, if you rely on a story like this, which is filled with the, in the books of history, that's how the story is told. And then when you have it in another from the words of the Imams, when they tell us that he knew exactly what was being communicated <coughs> to him, he understands what to do with it, he understands we have other, uh, even when you combine it with other uh, narrations and other uh, reports from the Imams that basically tell us he's almost expecting this. The unrolling and the timing is something that he's been prepared for his whole life up to that point. So when it happens, he needs to carry the message, but he feels the weight of the message. So the Holy Quran, the first verses come, Ya Ayyuhal Muzzammil, Ya Ayyuhal Muzdathir. There's this, uh, you know, inciting, motivating, pushing and encouraging the Holy Prophet, stand up, rise with this weighty thing that we have put on you and go deliver the message and don't be afraid and we're going to support you and so on and so forth. Completely different than this unstable man who's looking for anyone to, you know, prevent him from committing suicide because he's not sure what's happening to him. Anyways. So all of this has to do with the first portion. The second portion of this idea of infallibility. Uh, and why is it that these people who have it will not even entertain the idea of committing a sin? So here, the little introduction that the author gives us is that when a human being wants to perform any action, that action is based on some sort of faculty, desire, some sort of leaning to try to get a need, something that motivates them to move in a certain direction. And so when they move in that direction, 
This movement is usually based on a knowledge. They have a certain knowledge, a certain worldview, certain habits, certain upbringing that makes human beings lean towards things and stay away from other things. Any human act, any human deed is going to follow that pattern. When I'm about to do something, it's based on whatever knowledge I have of that thing. Okay, so let's take the example of someone wanting to brush their teeth at night. I may be lazy and decide not to brush or I may brush, but both of them are based on knowledge. Now we're going to add another dimension to it. I may know that I'm supposed to, but I may not give it enough value. I may give value to something else that in my system, currently in this moment, has more value than brushing my teeth, which is, I'm too lazy, I want to rest. So I give more value to my rest than brushing my teeth, so I don't get up to do it. And we can explain any human behavior based on this. Okay? So this is in general. This is introduction, premise, keeping in mind. Now if we look at the rest of our lives, how we live our lives, we all know that there are things that none of us, or at least I think, let, let's use hopefully examples that apply to everybody here, okay? There are things that would not even cross any of our minds. None of us would ever think of doing those things. Some of those things are, in our natural day-to-day -day lives, have, has nothing to do with religion. Some of them have to do with religion. We all have, as human beings, we all have red lines. And they're different from one person to another. What may apply to one person may not apply to another. For example, someone, if they work as a cashier somewhere, it may never cross their mind to put their hand in the cash register and take a little bit of money and put it in their pocket. Whether there is a camera there or not. Someone else, they may put their hand and take but what's preventing them is a the camera, okay? These are red lines that are different for different people. One person does not even think about it. It doesn't even cross their mind. They are day in, day out working there. The idea never crosses their mind to take something that does not belong to them, ever. Other example, someone who's in a situation of a conflict back and forth, it may get violent. The idea of murdering another human being would never cross their mind. Someone else, not only do they think it, they might do it. Right? The news is full of that every day. Another example. You're sitting somewhere and someone brings you a cup and they tell you, part of the vulgarity of the example, someone tells you this is urine. Would the idea of drinking it cross your mind? Or to take it a little bit more theoretical, but still as fearful, someone tells you this is poison, this is acid. Would the idea cross your mind to drink it? You're walking somewhere and you're very hungry and you find the old carcass of an animal full of maggots, it's putrid, it's decomposing, it's filthy. Would the idea of eating from it cross your mind? So as human beings, I'm going to use a terminology here intentionally, as human beings, we do have infallibility. We do have red lines. And it's not because I can't. I can. But based on my system and my worldview and my knowledge, and this is the key, my knowledge of what's in this cup, my knowledge of what I'm seeing, the idea of 
making any steps towards this does not even cross my mind. It may even be very repulsive to me. It's ugly, it's disgusting. I'm repulsed by it. So for someone else, a sin looks like that. It's not because they can't. It's because as we said, they're seeing the reality of the sin. They have access to a type of knowledge that shows them the true ugliness of that sin, of that act. Which is completely different from having theoretical knowledge about it. I know that lying is haram. I know that cheating is haram, in theory. We have one of our scholars who says, we all know that a dead body doesn't do anything. But how many of us are willing to lie down beside it for a night all alone, in a room all alone? Not a lot of people. We know, but we know in theory. We don't have faith that this is really. We still have some doubts because of our system of knowledge, because of our system of belief. If you have a system of knowledge or belief that allows you to see the reality of these things as they truly are, then you're not going to embark on them. Which tells us what? Which tells us that this is a gradation. I have levels of infallibility. And you have, and every one of us has. They're just at different levels. What may cross someone's mind may not cross someone else's mind. And someone, the idea may cross their mind, but it would never, they would never think of actually really doing it. They just think about it. And someone else is actually going to fight. Do I do it or not? And to another person, they're not even going to think about it. They just do it. Okay, now we're starting to see very different levels of this infallibility. So if we want to rely, and this is a theory that's presented by the author, if we want to explain infallibility based on knowledge, this is what it looks like. If I am infallible, if I am masum, it's because of the type, the kind of knowledge, and the degree of knowledge that I have. So the difference between and the, between me and the real masum is that the kind of knowledge they have is a completely different level. They have existential, in-presence knowledge. And the degree is a completely different degree. But we get a glimpse of it in our lives. So it's not that impossible to fathom and to imagine. Okay? And then, so this is, you know, we have, uh, I don't know if I added them here. We don't have them. We do have in, in certain, I thought the, the lesson would be too long if I added all of those. We have in certain of our, and many, many of our narrations, especially that have to do with ethics and morality and the nature of sinning and how believers, believers are and their states when they're sinning and when they're not sinning. For example, we have a narration where the Holy Prophet is talking to Abu Dhar and he tells him, he tells him, for the believer committing a sin, is like stepping under a hanging rock that may fall at any time when they step under it. So for someone like Abu Dhar, the example works. Maybe for someone like me, the example doesn't. Because I can never imagine myself in a situation where I see the danger of the sin as being of that reality. If I really saw a rock and I saw that it could fall at any time, I would never walk under it in real life. But on the metaphorical the metaphor, the analogy that the Prophet is giving me, it may not work. Because I cannot imagine the sin as being of that type of danger. But Abu Dawood. Okay? 
Another example we have is from Imam Sadiq who says that the, the speed at with which the sin can harm people is faster than the speed or worse than when the knife goes through the skin or your flesh, the flesh of a man. Who amongst us would be ready to just take a knife and stab themselves? No one. The Imam is saying the sin is like that or worse. But that's for someone who really sees the danger of the sin. If I don't see the danger, of, of course I can commit. I think if I don't know that this is poison and I think this is water, if I don't know that this sin is this kind of, resulting in this kind of danger, of course I'm gonna do it. It's based on my system of knowledge. And then we have, and I encourage you all to go back and read the Sermon of Al-Muttaqeen, the Sermon of Al-Pious, in Nahj al-Bala'a of Imam Ali salam, where he describes the states of those who are really pious. And he says how they, it is as though they are in heaven right now. They have seen hell, and it is as though they are in it right now, and they have seen heaven, and it is as though they have entered it right now. Of course that person is living in a completely different state than I am. When they go into prayer or they go into fasting or they perform, a, they, they recite a dua or read Quran, their state is not going to be the same as mine who's only, you know, repeating the words and going through the ritual. But I'm not feeling anything. Or when I do the sin, I don't feel anything. They feel that they're burning in hell. There's something that scares them. The khutbah, not the sin. The khutbah, the sermon of Imam Ali salam, was enough to kill the man to whom Imam Ali salam, was describing those who are pious. Humam in, in the khutbah, he asked the Imam, describe to me those who are pious. And the Imam described piety as it truly is. And the man died at the end. And he says, this is what pure or real advice does to those who can really understand it. This was the ending of, of the khutbah and what Imam says, and he stopped and he didn't finish the this is not someone who performed the sin. He just understood what the Imam is saying about those people. Okay? And then, very quickly here. So this is all about someone who has the knowledge to embark or not embark on the sin. What about the rest? What we're talking about are people who have an infallibility that protects them from mistakes and forgetfulness and the rest of their lives. So what do we do with that? This is what's covered, and we talked a little bit about that under the divine grace. This is where we need this divine guarantee from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No one can be protected there. We cannot have a guarantee ourselves from someone who is protected from every dimension of never committing any mistakes, never forgetting, never failing, never gaps in their conduct. I'm not talking about voluntary things, involuntary things. The person may think that they're doing the right thing, Based on everything, they know they're doing the right thing. Practically speaking, they've never committed a sin voluntarily. Involuntarily, we don't know. But this is outside of what we expect of a normal human being. But this is what's given to prophets. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can say, and they are perfect. You can follow them in everything. I have to guarantee that perfection. And he adds from himself so that they never fall into a situation where this happens because it creates problems for the revelation, for the message. So this is where the divine grace comes in. This is where we add. There is a part of it that is a person and their discipline and all the effort they put in, and they can, they're choosing. And we're gonna explain it with two more theories very quickly. 
And then there is the divine grace that comes and complements this in the case of these people, which are the prophets and the imams. That's why we can say, and they're perfect. That perfection could not be guaranteed by the person themselves without that divine grace. And that's why, of course, we have many, many narrations, for instance, talking about how Ruh al-Qudus is a Ruh al-Qudus, uh, in some of our narrations, it's Jibra'il alayhi salam, and other narrations, it's a creature greater than all of the angels that protects the believers, or that was always with the Holy Prophet, or, or, or. And this is a, an additional divine care. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you struggle for me, and I add, add grace, and I, from my grace, from my generosity, from my care, I add to you and I support you in return. So of course, in the case of messengers and prophets and imams, this is another one. So this is a recognition of the divine care. Of course, we see that from the prophets themselves. They're always asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not to leave them be to their own autonomous powers and faculties. They're always asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and so on and so forth. Do not let me be just to, with my own faculties. I need your constant support. I need your help. Last point here is, of course, as people get more knowledge, so all of this was based on the type of knowledge you have. As people get more knowledge, of course more knowledge allows you to act better, but it comes with more responsibility. So the expectation is higher. You have to act in accordance with that knowledge, otherwise it's used against you. Okay, so that's a, a topic on its own that we're not gonna get into right now. Very quickly, two things. We now presented a theory of infallibility based on two things, based on one thing, which is knowledge. Now we want to, this is what was in the book. We want to complement it with two more sources of infallibility based on other theories. One of them is the person who is infallible actually feels the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with them at all times. Someone who feels the presence, let's put the knowledge aside. Knowledge is maybe theoretical and all of that. This is another theory. The reason why these people are infallible, the reason that prevents them, the source that prevents them, that gives them their discipline and prevents them from ever even thinking of committing a sin is because they feel the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His true nature, in all of His attributes at all times. So this is one example very quick example from Dua Arafah, on the day of Arafah, from Hussein salam, when he talks with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, how can your existence be evidenced by that which is dependent on you for its existence? Can anything other than you have a manifestation that you lack? So he's saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more clear and present and close to the Imam than anything else. Okay, he's basically arguing, the Imam here is arguing against going through anything else to go to God. That's what he's arguing. But that's because he, he has God so close to him that he wants to reject this argument. And he goes back and forth, you're gonna see that. Can anything other than you have a manifestation that you lack? When were you ever absent so that you need evidence pointing towards you? Or when did you become far so that your traces become that which lead to you? Blind is the eye that does not see you watching it. And at last is the deal of a servant who failed to allot a portion of it for your love. 
oh my God, you have ordered us to return to the traces, basically your traces, your signs. And the Imam is basically saying at the end, I don't want to return to the traces to come back to you. He says, uh, I return to you. Oh my God, you have ordered us to return to the traces, so return me to you through the garb of light and the guidance of the heart's vision. I don't have time to explain this now. So that I, I return to you from them the same way I enter towards you from them. Too protected in my heart of hearts to look at them and too full of pride with determination to rely on them for you have power over all things. Okay, so this is an example of being in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that in itself prevents you from even thinking of this. The last example that we have very quickly is the theory based on love. If you love someone, you do, know, you do nothing that they dislike and you try to endear yourself to them. You try to do things that they love, not things that they dislike. You try to impress them. You know their preferences. You want to know more about them so that you can fulfill those needs that they have better. So if you are an infallible with that kind of relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're not going to ever do anything that you think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dislikes. You have a relationship with Allah that is based on a lover with a lover, with a beloved. Okay, so this is the third theory. So the third theory, and this is only one example from Dua Abi Hamza, Imam Sajjad We can find it in Dua Al-Kumayl from Imam Ali We can find it in the whispered prayers of the lovers of Imam Sajjad Oh my God, even if you tied me with the chains and deprived me of the stream of your bounties from among the witnesses and pointed to my scandals before the eyes of your servants. So the Imam is explaining all the kinds of punishment that he may expect on the day of judgment based on one's own sins and one's own shortcomings and he says you're making me go through all of this and ordered that I be thrown in hell and separated between me and the righteous ones I would still never cut my hope in you you nor would I ever deviate my ambition and forgiveness away from you nor would your love exit my heart okay so this is in those not in this life and the comforts and the ease of this life in that condition in that situation I would still be completely in love with you Someone who's in that situation, in that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not think, it does not cross their mind to do anything that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dislikes. Two quick points and we'll finish with that. The first one is, we now presented three theories for infallibility. One based on knowledge, one based on being in the presence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and one based on love. The reality is we're cutting them up into three for analytical reasons. What we find in prophets and imams is that all of this is present at the same time. That's one. So this needs to be thought about. The second point is that if infallibility is based on your knowledge, or infallibility is based on the extent to which you feel the divine presence, or your love, all of those three things have infinite degrees. How much you can know, and how much you can feel the Divine Presence and how much you can love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have infinite degrees. Which means that infallibility is not one level. Based on how much you know and how much you feel the Presence and how much you love, then you are going to have a different level of infallibility. But every person 
that has been appointed by Allah as an infallible is meeting the minimal threshold for them to be perfect in what we need for revelation. But between them, of course there are ranks. That can be infinite in variance. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين